This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is Seeking Learning and Edification Through the Arts. In the first half, Robert T. Barrett shares his address, Illuminated Stories. Then in the second half, Kay Newell Daly speaks on Centering the Arts in Christ. Two weeks ago, Vicki and I were in Washington, D.C., attending the Portrait Society of America conference with seven of my illustration students on an experiential learning trip. Our students represented us so well. Vicki and I were in Rome last year, which included a visit to the Vatican Museum and an opportunity to view the Sistine Chapel. Speaking of the painting and its creator, Michelangelo, President Spencer W. Kimball stated, His 3,500-square-foot painting in the Sistine Chapel is said to be the most important piece of mural painting of the modern world. To be an artist, said President Kimball, or a scientist or a mathematician could be added, means hard work and patience and long-suffering. Michelangelo said, I am a poor man and of little merit who plods along in the art which God gave me. His David in Florence and his Moses in Rome inspire to adulation, said President Kimball. A recent exhibition entitled Michelangelo, Divine Draftsman and Designer was displayed at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Eight years in the making, the exhibit included 133 drawings, which was the largest group of drawings by Michelangelo ever assembled for public display. Among the drawings exhibited at the Metropolitan Museum is a single page of studies Michelangelo drew for the Libyan Sibyl, a page I often show and display for my life-drawing students. Sibyls at the time were considered to have equal status to that of the prophets. Historically, drawings did not exist as standalone entities, but rather as preparatory studies for more monumental work. Of drawing, Michelangelo stated, Let this be plain to all. Design, or as it is called by another name, drawing, constitutes the fountainhead and substance of painting and sculpture and architecture and is the root of all sciences. Let him who has attained the possession of this be assured that he possesses a great treasure. One wonders, were his statement made today, if it wouldn't also include the disciplines of animation, digital painting, and graphic design. In his letters and poetry, Michelangelo reveals a sensitive spirit and an individual who loved and revered God. In Michelangelo's opinion, it was God who bestowed all talents and abilities. His were no exception. Despite his self-assurance, he also experienced bouts of insecurity and great conflicts within himself related to his desire to attain perfection in his work. Shortly before his death, Michelangelo burned hundreds of his drawings, sketches, and cartoons a self-inflicted bonfire to mediocrity in an effort to conceal the ways in which he labored to realize his genius. In my life-drawing classes, I encourage students to make master copies of different artists, not so much as an exercise to fill their sketchbooks with good drawings as an exercise for making valuable observations about the work of the artist they select. Historically accomplished artists have always stood on the shoulders of greatness, Norman Rockwell was no exception. In his 1943 cover for the Saturday Evening Post, Rockwell pays homage to Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel figure of Isaiah in his portrayal of Rosie the Riveter. 
Of World War II, millions of women left their homes to fill a manpower shortage, building bombs, tanks, planes, and a myriad of other necessary items. To do so, they had to overcome the perception that they were physically not up to the task. Rockwell's heroic Rosie seems more than equal to the task. In 1964, when he painted The Problem We All Live With, Norman Rockwell had left the Saturday Evening Post and begun working for Look magazine. This painting was his first assignment. Rockwell did multiple studies for the illustration, the process of making sketches, tonal studies, and color comprehensives is a long-standing tradition for artists extending back for centuries. Similarly, dress rehearsals in music, theater, and dance have become an integral part of securing a successful public performance. I love the scripture found in Doctrine and Covenants 3830, If ye are prepared, ye shall not fear. Or, as President Monson often remarked, when the time for performance arrives, the time for preparation is past. Another important principle for artists and illustrators in the preparation of their creative work involves the opportunity to have personal experiences with the subject being portrayed. The British philosopher Roger Scruton in a BBC program entitled Why Beauty Matters stated that through beauty we are brought into the presence of the sacred. He continued, Philosophers have argued that through the pursuit of beauty we shape the world as a home. We also come to understand our own nature as spiritual beings. In his book entitled The Greater Journey, two-time Pulitzer Prize-winning author David McCullough wrote about LDS artists. A group of aspiring young Mormon painters who called themselves art missionaries arrived in Paris from Utah, many to enroll in the Académie Julienne. Their expenses were being provided by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in return for work they would later contribute, painting murals in the temple in Salt Lake City. As one of their leaders, an especially gifted painter named John Haven, said, their motivation was the belief that the highest possible development of talent is the duty we owe our Creator. In the spring of 1890, John Haven and fellow artist Loris Pratt visited George Q. Cannon, who was then a member of the First Presidency, with a proposal that the LDS Church call and fund them, together with artist John Fairbanks, on an art mission to Paris. They explained their need for additional training and also expressed a commitment to contribute their subsequently acquired skills to the creation of murals for the Salt Lake Temple. To quote John Hafen, I made it a matter of prayer for many years that he would open a way whereby I could receive that training which would benefit me to decorate his holy temples and the habitations of Zion. Hafen and Pratt and Fairbanks hiked Ensign Peak and offered a prayer that their proposal might be granted. It was accepted, and on June 3rd of that year they were set apart as missionaries with a special purpose. Their departure for Paris occurred on June 23rd. Edwin Evans became the fourth art missionary departing in September, and Herman Hogg followed shortly after as the fifth missionary. Upon returning, these artists created murals for the Salt Lake, Karsten, Alberta, and Mesa Temples. A collection of donated paintings by John Hafen became the initial basis for the Springville Museum of Art. In an interview, President Boyd K. Packer referenced the art missionaries who aspired to create art for temples. He stated that feeling inspired as an artist was not enough, that talent and inspiration needed to be backed up with training and experience, 
so that the work created would be credible. He said that the training of great artists, writers, and musicians means, in part, that they need to learn what the world has to teach. In Paris, the best art educational center in the world at that time, they were not just taught how to paint, but they were also exposed to the work of the great masters. The art missionaries came to understand through their diligent search for learning that it took a great deal of energy and time to acquire the skill and knowledge they sought. Sacrifice and patience became important components in their quest for learning. Oliver Cowdery learned an important lesson as he desired to translate the ancient record inscribed on the gold plates. His desires were admirable, but his attempts to translate were not successful. His failure may have been a consequence of undertaking the process with insufficient effort. The Lord told Oliver, Behold, you have not understood. You have supposed that I would give it to you when you took no thought, save it were to ask me. Oliver learned that the Lord never does for his children what they can do for themselves. Doing so would deny his children the opportunity to learn and to grow from their own experience, which is one of the fundamental purposes of mortality. As children of our Heavenly Father, we must make more effort than to simply ask Him. We must put forth effort and prepare before He can guide us. To Oliver, the Lord outlined the action He expected him to take, which was to study it out in your mind and then ask me if it be right. For an artist, this might sound like draw it out in your own mind and then confirm the correct direction. This statement suggests that the Lord expects His children to do their homework on a problem, consider the options, and then make a decision. Then and only then are they able to take their decisions to the Lord and ask Him if what they have decided to do is right. In the Gospel of John we read, If any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. It seems we will only receive a testimony of tithing by paying our tithing. We will only know the Book of Mormon is true after reading it and praying about it. We will only know if the course we are pursuing is correct by first choosing it and then asking God if we are on the right course. Regarding the principle of learning by doing, David McCullough remarked, The great thing about the arts is that the only way you learn how to do it is by doing it. You can't learn to play the piano without playing the piano. You can't learn to write without writing. And in many ways, you can't learn to think without thinking. At a BYU devotional, President Hinckley remarked, Work is the miracle by which talents rise to the surface and dreams become a reality. Several years ago, when President Irene was serving as the Church Commissioner of Education, I had the opportunity to sit on the stand with him. While our dean at the time was delivering his remarks, I noticed that President Irene appeared to be taking notes in a small book which he carried with him. Following the devotional, I commended him for his diligence, and he responded by asking, Do you want to see what I was doing? He opened up what was a small sketchbook and, to my surprise and delight, quickly showed me some of the images he had been drawing. I often tell my students they will know if they are artists, if they can observe and draw, feel and draw, and think and draw. In graduate school, I encountered several different experiences that were challenging for me. One of those experiences involved an initial review for my master's degree where I was asked to stand on stage and defend my work to the entire art department faculty. 
I don't believe I was very articulate or persuasive at the time because I failed to pass the review. That experience was extremely disappointing to me and to Vicky, especially after we had encountered the challenge of moving 1,200 miles away and were scrimping to pay out-of-state tuition. But rejection caused me to dig deeper and pushed me outside my comfort zone. Through additional research, I became exposed to different points of view and different philosophies and was able to understand the context of criticism leveled at a large body of representational work. I also came to realize why it was possible to be drawn toward figurative work and develop a justification for doing so. Research allowed me to develop an informed justification and critical theory for what I was drawn to and wanted to be exploring as an artist. My work became more than rendering and began to include interpretation and concept. My own experiences were projected into the work and it also became more personal and symbolic. I think it ultimately became more interesting and I passed my second review. I routinely tell my students that if they want to progress rapidly in the gaining of new skills and different ways of seeing, they must be willing to leave their comfort zones and work on the very edge of their capabilities. They must be willing to take risks, fail, and try again. But unlike skydiving, I assure them that they do get more than one opportunity. (laughs) On one occasion, Elder Richard G. Scott describes his visit to and fascination with an artist who happened to be the husband of his wife's friend. He was impressed with the work he saw, and he wondered if it would be possible for him to be able to create similar paintings. With some trepidation, Elder Scott bought an art book, read it, bought some paints, and painted a watercolor. He states, The results, even viewed charitably, were not good. (laughs) He then talks about the temptation to quit or give up. However, he decided to pursue his ambition. He purchased better materials, he received instruction, and he was introduced to a number of master artists. He was rewarded by having one of his paintings juried into an art competition and having another one purchased. Regarding his experience, Elder Scott wrote, Search for feelings that prompt you to try something new. Otherwise, you may never enter the doors it opens to insight, enjoyment, and wonder. Every individual has creative capacity. The satisfaction and growth creativity generates is intended for each of us, but trying takes courage. Believe in yourself, continued Elder Scott. Doubt destroys creativity, while faith strengthens it. As you experiment with new things, you will discover a great deal about yourself that likely won't be revealed in any other way. Following the completion of my graduate degree, I received a grant to complete a year of postgraduate work in Berlin, Germany. Spending a year in Berlin with a young family was not an easy experience. It did, however, end up being a very consequential experience. The City Colleges of Chicago had an extension in Berlin, and it was there that I had my first college teaching experience. I also had access to some of the great art of Europe, including several works by Rembrandt at the Dahlem Gallery. We were able to travel to other museums in East Berlin, as well as in Italy, the Netherlands, England, and Denmark. While teaching at the Tempelhof Air Force Base, I learned more about the Berlin Airlift and became aware of the story of Gail Halverson, the Mormon candy bomber. Little did I realize at that time that I would much later be illustrating the story Christmas from Heaven. At a later book signing, I had the opportunity to meet Hal for the first time. I've been wanting to meet you for a long time, I said. He responded, I've been wanting to meet you for a long time as well. 
I related to him how we had lived in Berlin and that I had taught classes at the airbase there. I had learned more about the airlift and his story but never imagined I would be illustrating it one day. He told me his father used to say, out of small things come great things, to which I responded, that sounds almost scriptural. He responded, well, you and I both know that it is. Another important children's book, Silent Night, Holy Night, which I was fortunate to illustrate, portrayed the story of the 1914 Christmas truce that took place during World War I. On Christmas Day that year, combatants on both sides of the conflict laid down their arms for a brief period and joined in singing carols and remembering the Prince of Peace. Don Mullen, an author, film producer, and human rights leader, organized a centennial to commemorate that truce, the truce that took place at the Church of St. Nicholas at Messines, Belgium in 2014. He contacted me to request permission to use the illustrations from my book as part of a permanent exhibition in the crypt of St. Nicholas. The purpose of the exhibition was not only to commemorate the Christmas truce, but to create a place of pilgrimage for all lovers of peace and reconciliation in the world. Don Mullen grew up in Derry, Ireland, and was 15 years old when British soldiers killed 27 unarmed civilians in his city. He was filled with anger and almost joined the IRA, but told me God was watching over him because the night he was to join his sponsor did not show up. John chose the path of peace instead and later wrote and produced a number of documentaries on the Irish Civil War. He traveled to BYU a few years ago and spoke to students and faculty in our department. Through his work as a writer and filmmaker, Don was in a unique position to communicate his intimate vision to our students and to me. As we walked across campus, he was ever curious, asking about each place and activity we encountered. He gave me the opportunity to see not only through his eyes, but also through his thoughts and his emotions. Toward the conclusion of his visit at BYU, he wrote a message to a dear friend. I wish you could be here with me over these sacred days at Brigham Young University. As you know, I have over my lifetime been to many campuses, but I have never had this profound sense of the sacred before. The Mormon people I have had the privilege of meeting on this visit are deeply and profoundly Christian. It has been a deep spiritual privilege to have been blessed with the grace of walking among them. Don is a Roman Catholic, but helped me see the surprising beauty and spirituality that was in front of me here at BYU and helped me celebrate that which I might otherwise have passed by without noticing. It has been said that the source of interesting pictures is life and that life is a function of your experience. Your experience is your life. The type of experience that is most influential to artists and illustrators was, as well as their audience is visual. Illustrators are visual storytellers, and the word illustration derives from the Latin illustrare, which means to illuminate or make bright. Historically, the Bible and other important books and manuscripts had their stories illuminated with letters, designs, and paintings. In her book entitled The Shelter of Each Other, clinical psychologist Mary Pfeiffer writes, I am an advocate for more stories, not fewer. I like to hear that extended family, neighbors, old people, people from different backgrounds, poets, teachers, and children are telling stories to each other. Everyone has stories to tell. Stories are about imagination and hope. They are, to quote poet William Stafford, about discovering what the world is trying to be. 
Elder and Sister Oak spoke about the importance of stories at the Family Discovery Day at Roots Tech in February of this year. Family stories count. Children should know that they belong to something bigger than themselves, said President Oaks. A recent study by a university in the South concludes persuasively that if you want a happier family, create, refine, and retell the stories of your ancestors. Emphasize their ability to persist through adversity. That act alone will increase the odds that your family will thrive for many generations to come. Author David McCullough adds, All history is family history. And as Isaac Dennison stated, To be a person is to have a story to tell. Stories are a way to preserve our history and culture, passing it along in a form that's easy for others to remember, including the next generation. Stories help us explore possibilities. I loved the Wi-Fi password we were given on our recent trip in one hotel—adventure. One of the most basic functions of a story is to teach, and when we tell stories about ourselves, we are imagining our possibilities and hopefully helping ourselves choose the best ones. Stories bind us together and reveal our humanity. In a best-selling book on art education, author Sam Adequay stated, All students have what it takes to turn their artistic abilities into the realization of their dreams, but what is needed for things to happen is hidden until they search for it. All students, he continued, have the potential to become as good as they envision themselves capable of becoming. Earlier this year, we were able to host award-winning illustrator Jerry Pinckney. One of the greatest blessings of our students and faculty has been our visiting lecturer program. We are so grateful for the resources BYU and generous donors have provided to make this a possibility. Jerry Pinckney grew up in a segregated neighborhood of Philadelphia in a small home with two parents and five siblings. Drawing became his private space. He was not able to join certain organizations because of his race or go to certain places. His mother read to her children both fables, legends, folk tales, and told stories of African and African-American culture. Jerry was dyslexic but came to love literature. He became passionate about drawing, which was easier for him, and he routinely showed his creative work to his teachers to demonstrate that he was interested in learning. When he began his career, he was told there was no opportunity for African Americans in children's books, but he persisted and now is both illustrated and writing his own stories. In 1995, he was awarded a Caldecott Honor Award for his children's book, John Henry. To our students, he said, I am a storyteller at heart. For me, stories transformed my everyday life. They sparked my curiosity and provided an escape from a crowded environment. Deal with hard things, he said. Challenge the status quo and your own prejudices. Embrace your limitations. Be willing to take risks. Continue to grow. You will grow if you want to grow. There are many stories yet unborn, writes Mary Pfeiffer. The best stories are stories that help us see the complexities faced by others. We need stories to connect us with each other, stories to heal the polarization that can over whelm us all, and stories to calm those who are frightened and who hate. These stories would offer us the possibility of reconciliation. We need stories that teach children empathy and accountability, 
how to act, and how to be. Children are hungry for stories that help them feel hopeful and energetic. She continues, good stories have the power to save us. Reality is full of cautionary tales, heroes and difficult obstacles overcome through persistence. The best resource against the world's stupidity, meanness, and despair is simply telling the truth with all of its ambiguity and complexity. We all can make a difference by simply sharing our own stories with real people in real times and places. On my mission in Germany, I was able to meet and teach a young art history student who was studying at the Free University in Berlin. After baptizing her, she made it known to me that she was one of those spoken about in my patriarchal blessing. I returned to Berlin five years after my mission, and Vicky and I were able to spend time with Dorina and her family, who she had introduced to the Church. We had two daughters and were expecting our third child at the time. The Demariuses had two sons when were expecting their third child. Vicky and Dorina delivered within a week of each other. In a letter written to me after my mission, Dorina described how the artist Michelangelo believed in the principle of eternal progression. She informed me that, through her studies, she had learned he believed that the ultimate destiny of the human race was to attain a position that was like unto God. He said, The mind, the soul, becomes ennobled by the endeavor to create something perfect, for God is perfection, and whoever strives after perfection is striving for something divine. All of the individuals I have mentioned had the courage and motivation to endure hard things and experience great achievement. Michelangelo was beaten as a child by both his father and his uncle when they discovered him drawing, but went on to accomplish some of the world's greatest masterpieces. Norman Rockwell was criticized for his civil rights paintings. Angry letters referred to him as a hypocrite, and one letter referred to his painting as vicious, lying propaganda being used for the crime of racial integration. Today he is an artist known by most people, and his name is synonymous with optimism and goodwill. John Fairbanks and other art missionaries parted from family and loved ones and traveled thousands of miles to a foreign country. Fairbanks went on to create an artistic legacy in his community and family, with several family members becoming accomplished artists. Oliver Cowdery got frostbite on his toes while traveling to Harmony to meet the Prophet Joseph Smith and withstood multiple criticisms for remaining faithful to what he had experienced as one of the three witnesses. He was rebaptized after leaving the Church and died with a smile on his lips. Don Mullen overcame his trauma, anger, and dyslexia to write the best-selling book, Sunday Bloody Sunday, which later became an award-winning documentary as well. When the Soviet Union surrounded Berlin in June of 1946, the Western Allies supplied sectors of the city from the air. Gail Halverson participated in the Berlin airlift, carrying supplies to the people of West Berlin. A total of 101 fatalities were recorded, which included 17 American and 8 British aircraft that crashed during the operation. Elder Scott endured multiple bad paintings before he studied, received criticism, invested in quality art materials, and practiced to become a skilled watercolorist. Jerry Pinckney drew to overcome dyslexia and racial profiling to become an award-winning children's book illustrator. I am grateful 
for the gospel of Jesus Christ, for the Savior's life and sacrifice, and for the gospel restored in these the latter days. I am thankful for the scriptures and for the lives of the prophets. I bear testimony that the Savior lives, that this is His Church, and that we are led by living prophets, seers, and revelators. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is Seeking Learning and Edification Through the Arts. We've just heard from Robert T. Barrett. After the break, we'll return with Kay Newell Daly for Centering the Arts in Christ. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is Seeking Learning and Edification Through the Arts. Next is Kay Newell Daly, Dean of the BYU College of Fine Arts and Communications at the time of this address, titled Centering the Arts in Christ. What a rare blessing it is to be associated with an institution that honors the central role of Jesus Christ in this world's destiny. It was faith in Christ that motivated the founders of this institution, and that same faith guided those who established the arts as a core element of our curriculum. They followed the light that leads all mankind toward things that are virtuous, lovely, or of good report, or praiseworthy. Most were also responding to the quiet invitation of the Holy Ghost to center the arts in Christ. In Mormon's words, quote, I judge these things of them because of their peaceable walk with the children of men. For I remember the word of God, which saith, By their works ye shall know them. For if their works be good, then they are good also. I've been here long enough to know a lot of those souls. Their works were good, and they were good also. I offer my profound gratitude to all those faithful, sensitive women and men who loved beauty and truth enough to sacrifice their lives in service here. It is now our challenge to strengthen and extend their artistic work into the 21st century and beyond. Will we be willing to place Christ at the center of our work? During the ministry of Jesus in Palestine, there were many who, quote, believed on him but did not confess him, for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. End of quote. The same challenge exists today. Do we believe in Christ but fail to follow him because we love the praise of men more than the praise of God? Or are we willing to follow but uncertain about what that means? Quote, Behold, I am the light, he assured the Nephite faithful. I have set an example for you. End quote. What was that example? Well, first, Christ loved and obeyed his Father. He understood who he was. Jesus prayed often and studied the scriptures. He taught his followers about the Holy Ghost and urged them to seek and heed the Spirit's guidance. He invited his followers to consecrate their lives to the work of God through serving others. 
Our Savior encouraged all to repent and to freely forgive others. Christ challenged his followers to reach their full potential. He openly expressed love, compassion, understanding, and appreciation. He gave his life so others could return to his Father's presence. Jesus ministered personally, getting to know people by walking and working among them. He did not condescend to others, even though he was the only perfect mortal. Our Redeemer respected individual agency, taught true principles, encouraged self-governance, and provided an opportunity to account for personal thoughts and actions. He condemned sin without condemning the sinner and ministered to both the repentant and the unrepentant alike. Jesus lifted the downtrodden and gave hope to the discouraged. He blessed the sick and cared for the poor. If we desire to center the arts in Christ, we will follow his example. What manner of men ought ye to be? He asked the Nephite disciples and answered his own question with ever so simply, Verily I say unto you, even as I am. More precisely, he said earlier, I would that ye should be perfect, even as I or your Father who is in heaven is perfect. He invites us to be like him, not just to believe in him, but to be like him, to acquire in process of time his righteous attributes. If we seek to center the arts in Christ, will our artistic endeavors differ from those of others? If so, in what ways will they differ? How might our efforts also parallel the work of others who respond to the light of Christ? For what purposes should followers of Christ use the arts? Must they be willing to depart from some of the world's artistic traditions? If so, will that limit their creative energies or liberate them? Such is the nature of the questions that confront those who would follow Christ. But what are the arts, really? Are they subjects, professions, cultural artifacts, or events to attend? Yes, but that is not what they really are. The arts embody a unique learning process that awakens the very core of one's being to life's meaning and beauty. Through the arts, we can learn to see, hear, move, and feel with greater sensitivity and understanding. They provide both substance and stimulus for learning the creative process and nurture our capacity to explore the infinite. The arts enable us to communicate important realities that can be shared in no other way. Elder Boyd K. Packer has affirmed that, quote, because of what artists do, we are able to feel and learn very quickly some spiritual things that we would otherwise learn very slowly, end quote. We separate the arts, perhaps to better understand them, but learning processes called music, drama, painting, sculpture, dance, poetry, literature, or film 
are really parts of a greater whole. They encompass an approach to learning and knowing that is unique. The arts must be an essential core component of a truly balanced education. The arts are also a marvelous manifestation of the light of Christ. For, quote, the light which shineth, which giveth you light, is through him who enlighteneth your eyes, which is the same light that quickeneth your understandings, which light proceedeth forth from the presence of God to fill the immensity of space, the light which is in all things, which giveth life to all things, end quote. The creative flame that ignites artistic creation has its origin in the light that is in all things. Christ is the source of the power that is within us whereby we exercise free will and bring to pass much righteousness. His light gives life to our creative potential. His love impels us to creative action. Art itself appears because there is a spark of the divine nature in God's children. Those who remove themselves from the light of Christ through pride or disobedience may use the form of art to express themselves, but they deny the power thereof. Technical skill becomes the substance of their work because they are unable to receive the power that would give life and meaning. In contrast, those who seek to follow Christ are free to receive the enlightenment and pure joy that flows through art centered in him. We are that we might have joy. Art centered in Christ immerses us in joy. There is a difference between art that comes through the light of Christ and art that comes from the devil and those who subject themselves to him. That difference is not difficult to define. But the devil's enticements can be convincing, even to those who should know better. Christ has warned us, quote, that there are many spirits which are false spirits, which have gone forth in the earth, deceiving the world. And also Satan hath sought to deceive you that he might overthrow you. Behold, there are hypocrites among you who have deceived some which has given the adversary power, end quote. Wherefore, take heed, the prophet Mormon adds, that ye do not judge that which is evil to be of God, or that which is good and of God to be of the devil. Ezekiel charged us to teach the difference between the holy and profane, and cause people to discern between the unclean and the clean. It may be instructive to us this morning to review a few of the contrasts between art that has Christ at the center or that partakes of the light of Christ, and forms of art created by deceivers or hypocrites. First, art that partakes of the light of Christ invites and entices us to do good continually, to love God and to serve Him. It persuades us to believe in Christ, seeks the welfare of Zion through love and service, plants joy in the hearts of those who are seeking to be like Christ is virtuous, peaceful, and filled with charity for all. It reveals the opposition that exists in all things and the reality that all things are a combination or a compound in one. It radiates light and is filled with hope. 
It is born of meekness and loneliness of heart. The pure love of Christ is its driving force. It invites the visitation of the Holy Ghost, which comforter filleth with hope and perfect love. It is created by those who, through faith in Christ, shall have the power to do whatsoever thing is expedient in him. It is miraculous in its manifestation of beauty and love, and those who create it desire to come into Christ and be perfected in him and deny themselves of all ungodliness. It is manifest according to the power of the Holy Ghost. In contrast, the form of art created by the great deceiver invites and entices us to sin and to do that which is evil. It persuades us to do evil and believe not in Christ and deny him and serve not God. It sets the artist up as an, a light to the world for the purpose of getting gain and praise of the world. It offends the sensibilities of those who are seeking to be perfected in Christ. It is profane, corrupt, vulgar, violent, or blasphemous. It reveals only perverted dimensions of reality in order to obscure the fact that there is an opposition in all things and that all things must needs be a compound in one. It is dark and hopeless. It is born of pride and selfishness. Money is its driving force. It is strong in perversion, and those who create it delight in everything save that which is good. They are without principle and past feeling. It is cr created by those who walk in their own way and after the image of their own God whose image is in the likeness of the world and whose substance is that of an idol. It is made to appear wonderful, even though it embodies darkness and sin. Those who create it withdraw themselves from the Spirit of the Lord, cometh out in open rebellion against God, listeth to obey the evil spirit, and becometh an enemy to all righteousness. And finally, it is manifest according to the power of the devil. Such are the contrasts that exist between the work of Christ and the work of the deceiver and his followers. There is no middle ground. There is a simple test. Art that is centered in Christ invites the Holy Ghost to be present during its creation and again as it is experienced by others in performance, exhibition, or publication. Satan's counterfeit has no such power. Elder Dallin H. Oaks has provided additional insight. Quote, Our model, our first priority, is Jesus Christ. We must testify of him and to teach one, one another how we can apply his teachings and his example in our lives. Brigham Young gave us some practical advice on how to do this. The difference between God and the devil, he said, is that God creates and organizes while the whole study of the devil is to destroy. Remember, our Savior Jesus Christ always builds us up and never tears us down. We should apply the power of that example in the ways we use our time, including our recreation and diversions. Consider the themes of the books, magazines, movies, television, and music we make popular by our patronage. The powerful idea in this example 
is that whatever builds people up serves the cause of the master, and whatever tears people down serves the cause of the adversary. Allow me to share a personal experience that may help illustrate the power and purpose of artistic experience that partakes of the light of Christ. Many years ago, unable to sleep because of pressing problems, I sought the boredom of late-night television as a substitute for counting sheep. We've all been there. Alone in the family room, I tuned to an educational channel just as a rather curious dance production was beginning. It was the story of the prodigal son retold through the music and choreography of Israeli collaborators and performed by an, an Israeli dance company. I expected this to be the perfect way to fall asleep. How wrong I was. As a familiar story unfolded through movement and music, the simplicity and power of the production increasingly moved me. Every expression and movement had meaning. The camera's ever-changing focus absolutely held me spellbound. The music touched my heart and filled it with wonder. The movements of the dancers, now transformed into actors, opened the eyes of my understanding. I observed that the Holy Ghost had an overpowering presence in my being. As the story reached the point of the son's return to his father, the son crawled to his father's feet, writhing in the agony of true repentance. At just the right moment, his father lovingly lifted him into his arms and held him in an attitude of total forgiveness. In an instant, I felt and understood the reality of the atonement with such intensity that I wept in both joy and sorrow. It was a powerful and precious experience made possible through collaboration among the performing arts of music, dance, and theater. As you can tell, just remembering it brings back some of those emotions. The Lord has counseled us to pray always, and he will pour out his spirit upon us. He has also affirmed that he delights in the song of the heart, and that the song of the righteous is a prayer unto him that shall be answered with a blessing upon our heads. We should recognize that because singing is similar to a prayer, or can be, the blessing promised the righteous singer is the presence of his spirit. Singing, whether with the voice or through the aid of a musical instrument, can provide a conduit to spiritual enrichment for those who are seeking with real intent to purify their lives. This promised blessing characterizes the power that is available to the righteous through the arts. The Lord revealed a number of things about our day to Nephi. One of them was the following promise, quote, Blessed are they who shall seek to bring forth my Zion at that day, for they shall have the gift and the power of the Holy Ghost. End quote. If we were to labor with all our heart, might, mind, and strength to center the arts in Christ, 
Would we help to bring forth Zion? And would we then enjoy the gift and the power of the Holy Ghost more abundantly? I believe we would. But we must be clear in our understanding. Quote, Zion cannot be built up unless it is by the principles of the law of the celestial kingdom. Otherwise, the Lord cannot receive her unto himself. End quote. We must be willing to give up the idols of the world, abide by the principles that characterize celestial life, and follow Christ. The Lord has admonished us to keep his commandments and seek to bring forth and establish the cause of Zion. For Zion must increase in beauty and in holiness. Zion must arise and put on her beautiful garments. What a wonderful opportunity we have to place the arts in service to the cause of Zion. Is this not real? Is this not the very purpose of the arts? As we participate together in Christ-centered artistic experiences, we will be increasingly bound together in singleness of purpose and a love for that which is good. We will become of one heart and one mind. Is not this Zion? But there is a price that must be paid. The arts require diligence, sacrifice, and commitment. We have an example in the, script, in the scriptures of one who imagined a marvelous outcome when he took no thought save it was to ask. He failed. We must do more. According to President Spencer W. Kimball, quote, we must take thought. We must make effort. We must be patient. We must be professional. We must be spiritual. End quote. And Elder Packer reminds us that our motives must also be considered. Quote, there is a test you might apply if you are among the gifted. Ask yourself this question. When I am free to do what I really want to do, what will it be? End quote. Will those who seek to serve the cause of Zion work in accordance with the spirit of truth or some other way? If it be by some other way, we have been warned, it is not of God. There are many kinds of artistic work that can contribute to the building of Zion. We must not constrict or limit our vision in this matter. Elder Packer offers a point of view that is very insightful and helpful. Quote, I think Jesus would rejoice at the playing of militant martial music as men marched to defend a righteous cause. I think that he would think that there are times when illustrations should be vigorous with bold and exciting colors. I think he would chuckle with approval when at times of recreation the music is comical or melodramatic or exciting, or at times when a carnival air is in order that decorations be bright and flashy, even garish. I think at times of entertainment he would think it quite in order for, for, for poetry that would make one laugh or cry, perhaps both at once. I think that he would think it would be in righteous order on many occasions to perform with great dignity symphonies and opera and ballets. I think that he would think that soloists should develop an extensive repertoire, each number to be performed at a time and in a place that is appropriate. But I am sure he would be offended at immodesty and irreverence in music, in poetry, in writing, in sculpture, in dance, or in drama." End of quote. What shall we do then? How can we know what is appropriate and useful to the cause of Zion? Nephi gave us an answer that is as precise as it is challenging. 
quote, I suppose that ye ponder somewhat in your hearts concerning that which ye should do after ye have entered in by the way. Do ye not remember that I said unto you that after ye had received the Holy Ghost, ye could speak, and I might interject here, create or perform or sing with the tongue of angels? And how could ye speak with the tongue of angels save it were by the Holy Ghost? Angels speak by the power of the Holy Ghost. Wherefore, they speak the words of Christ. Wherefore, feast upon the words of Christ. For behold, the words of Christ will tell you all things what ye should do. Wherefore, if ye will enter in by the way and receive the Holy Ghost, it will show unto you all things what ye should do. Behold, this is the doctrine of Christ. Finally, Elder Packer has extended the challenge that applies to many of us here today. Quote, Go to, then you who are gifted, cultivate your gift, develop it in any of the arts and in every worthy example of them. If you have the ability and the desire, seek a career or employ your talent as an avocation or cultivate it as a hobby, but in all ways bless others with it. Set a standard of excellence. Employ it in the secular sense to every worthy advantage, but never use it profanely. Never express your gift unworthily." End of quote. I wish to conclude this message with the words of the prophet Moroni. He was a man centered in Christ who understood perfectly the necessity of our conversion and transformation. Yea, come unto Christ and be perfected in him, and to deny yourselves of all ungodliness. And if ye shall deny yourselves of all ungodliness, and love God with all your might, mind and strength, then is his grace sufficient for you, that by his grace ye may be perfected in Christ. And if by the grace of God ye are perfect in Christ, ye can in no wise deny the power of God. And again, if by the grace of God ye are perfect in Christ and deny not his power, then are ye sanctified in Christ by the grace of God through the shedding of the blood of Christ, which is in the covenant of the Father unto the remission of your sins, that ye become holy without spot. I pray that we will not deny ourselves access to the power of Christ as we seek learning and edification through the arts. Rather, I hope for the day when all we do will be centered in Christ, that we might then enjoy the spiritual abundance he has promised those who are obedient and faithful. I am grateful for the love of our Father in heaven and his beloved Son, and for the peace and creative energy they extend to us through the sanctifying power of the Holy Ghost. I testify of their presence and concern for each of us. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was Seeking Learning and Edification Through the Arts, with thoughts from Robert T. Barrett, and K. Newell Daily. 
Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.